Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Do you have money sitting in the stock market and you're worried about it? Or worse, you have money sitting at the bank, not keeping up with inflation? My name is Charles Carrillo, founder and managing partner of Harborside Partners. And since 2006, I've been investing my money and my family's money into income-producing properties. These are real assets, real properties with real addresses that produce real cash flow. At Harborside Partners, we provide passive investors who love real estate with a turnkey investing solution. If you want to put your money to work in real estate but can't find deals, don't have the time to get funding, and the last thing that productive people want to do is manage real estate. We find the deals, we fund the deals, and we manage the tenants, the termites, and the properties. Partner with us at investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Go to investwithharborside.com. If you love real estate, you like the idea of passive income, and believe that income-producing properties will appreciate over time, go to investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have Andrew Reichert and Daniel Croce. They are co-founders of Burgo Realty, a Pittsburgh-based private equity real estate firm with over $270 million in assets under management across over 2,800 multifamily units. It is a vertically integrated company with over 80 employees handling everything from property acquisitions, asset management, to on-site property management. So thank you too for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having us, Charles. Glad to be here. So tell us a little bit uh, briefly about yourself, your backgrounds, both personally and professionally, prior to getting involved in real estate investing. Sure, I'll go first and I'll let Dan go. Um, so personally, I grew up in a family that um, was not entrepreneurial, not into real estate. And so kind of first generation entrepreneur, first generation uh, real estate owner and um, really just kind of fell in love with it through college, reading books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad and um, you know how to invest in real estate and uh, started reading every book on you know zero money down because I didn't have any money. So <laughs> bought my first duplex the year I graduated from college and kind of the rest is history. You know, I bought a duplex with no money down, actually walked away from closing with a check for 20 grand and use that to buy more real estate and then refied that, use that to buy more real estate. And then, uh, then we got into business together. Nice. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. And I can reciprocate. I, um, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. My mom emigrated here from uh, Belgium. My dad met her when he was in the Air Force. In Europe. And, um, similar to Andrew, my, Real estate was not in my family, but my mom was uh, always really prudent with uh, allocating resources. So she was interested in investing. I remember her pouring over stocks, and they didn't have much, but they were really diligent with what they did have. Um, it's funny. I, I actually remember um, in 2011, I suppose it was, I got a, a $5,000 inheritance from my grandmother, and I thought, you know, I don't want to put this in the stock market. So I hopped on Craigslist. And I found a, a row home for sale for 19 grand. So I, I put 5k down, borrowed 14. My payment was 162 bucks a month, and I got 600 in rent and was addicted uh, to getting those passive rent checks. So that's how I got into, into real estate. And 
like Andrew said, uh, professionally, I was my background was in accounting, so I was working for a big four public accounting firm. Um, but building my portfolio on the side, and eventually Andrew and I linked up. So, kind of moving forward to what you guys do now and your firm. Um, so, I always, I always find it interesting when there's firms that focus on a number of different asset classes. So, you guys are in multifamily, mixed use, office, medical office, retail. So, can you kind of give us an overview of what your investment strategy is, and what is your criteria when you are acquiring these properties? Well, Charles, that's a little bit incriminating because uh, you're highlighting the fact that we didn't used to actually really have an investment strategy. We just bought stuff. <laughs> um, you know, but uh, well, that's that's not true. Our first fund, uh, our, our strategy was multi-asset class, and um, a third of our first fund was allocated to a, a mixture of service-oriented retail and uh, mostly medical office properties. But somewhere on the line, really as a result of some sort of crucial conversations that we had with some of our investors, in our second fund, we decided to be laser focused on workforce housing in the heartland. Um, and so while it's true that we do, we do still own and operate uh, a diverse type of properties, and we even got into the short-term rental business with Airbnb, we, we've dabbled with a little bit of everything. but. Um, in recent years, we've gotten laser focused on doing one thing, and that's workforce housing in the heartland. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's what worked for us. Thankfully, we've done okay in some of the other stuff that we did, but uh, I think you know, it's just in terms of focus and trying to be really good at one thing, um, we've decided to roll up our sleeves on workforce housing. Yeah, it also makes it easier, I would imagine, with managing that because it's now you have one kind of you know, you have one property type that you're always renting out. If someone moves from one property, you bring them to another property. It's not like with your commercial where your vacancies can really kill you because um, they go for much longer. But can you just, Daniel, you talked about workforce housing. And just so people know, can you explain what your definition of workforce housing is and how you guys work that into your strategy? Sure. Um, and I'll tell you that that's another somewhat incriminating question because we don't have a super crisp answer to it. we at times, um, sort of shifted a little bit from how we think of, of what workforce housing actually is. But for us, it's it's affordability. You know, it's, we're in the class BC space, or C plus, B minus space, and so you know, kind of a litmus test thing. We're we're not doing anything that's that's class A, anything that you know is is not super affordable for the common man. You could think of it in terms of you know percentage of income. We we tend to be below twenty percent of, of income is oh. where our rents are. So pretty much everything we do is what Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac call naturally occurring affordable. So that would be sort of one litmus test for us is, is in the eyes of the, the big agencies that they call it naturally occurring affordable. Yeah, that's a great little pocket because you're in that very it's a very solid tried and true, let's say, part of the market um, where it's it's not disrupted as much when you're going through all these different parts of the market cycle, I feel. And you know, it's not you're not in low C where you have issues and you're not in high B or A where maybe people might be buying houses or those jobs, someone loses their job in one of those households and they really have to cut back and they're coming to one of your workforce housing properties. Um, 
So when you're when you're buying these properties and um, like how you're working with your investors, how are you normally doing a like investment horizon? What is your time frame? Do you have a set one? Do you have some investments that are more long term? You know, maybe ten years plus. Do you have ones that you say tell investors, "Hey, we're going to do this in five years," or how does that usually work? Yeah, so um, we have done things a little bit uniquely in terms of how we've structured our business. Um, and some of that is just my background. I was a, a fund manager of different kinds of not real estate funds before we started our, our first investment vehicle as a fund manager. And so we just started a fund with our first uh, investments back in 2015. And it was a 10-year fund. And so that gives us a really clean time horizon. We were buying assets in 15 and 16 with the plan to hold them through 2025. Um, and then we started a second fund in 2018. We also called that a 10-year fund. Um, and, but actually, one of the things that we've learned is that that's a really long time to have a, um, a hold period and achieve consistently very high returns. Mm-hmm. So you can you can add value in those first couple of years, and then you refi out, and you know, it's, it's kind of hard to get that consistent value pop. So something that we did last year was form an evergreen fund, and that's a vehicle that uh, enables us to buy assets that are really high quality, but you know, we we think we want we want to own them for 15, 20, 30 years. But maybe not have these you know, giant value pops, but just kind of slow and steady singles and doubles. Um, and then as it would turn out, we just last month uh, launched a new five-year fund that's a mm-hmm. fund. So we think of hold period in terms of what investment vehicle are we investing out of and what's the, the thesis and horizon for that particular vehicle. But I'd say it can be anywhere on the on the low end to you know two, three years. We just want to get a quick value pop and get out to indefinite, open-ended, very, very long-term. Yeah, I love the idea of the Evergreen Fund. That's fantastic because it's it's true that you have a lot of syndicators that avoid the Evergreen Fund because you can't get the high, high returns. And But you have investors that don't really care how long you own a property if they get their distributions. So it's it's a very... That's awesome. That's a, that's a great way of, of doing that. And I imagine some of your investors um, asked you or really like working with you because of that. So... Um, but I want to talk about like how you're when you're you guys are in one market, you're in Pittsburgh, and I'm not sure what areas of Pittsburgh you are, but how does focusing and specializing in just one market assist your company with really identifying good deals for you and your company and your investors? Um, so to clarify, we've actually expanded a little bit geographically, mm-hmm. but um, our first Many years we were only in Pittsburgh. And I think, you know, we really kind of got a, a corner on the market in terms of certain asset profiles, not a huge market. Uh, and there weren't many professional capital sources that were looking to do multifamily communication or multifamily aggregation in our market. And so I think we were able to get really efficient at understanding every nook and cranny of the market, knowing exactly where we did want to be, exactly where we didn't want to be. Um, and also just, you know, the, the purchasing power that comes with vendors, we're vertically integrated. So all the 
with strengths, you know, working with brokers, we're the, the known buyer in the market for particular property types. Um, even lenders, you know, our, our local banks, very, very comfortable with us. They have an instant understanding of, of the market. So I think it's a lot of those things. And I would say that when we made the decision a couple years back to expand, we went first to Morgantown, West Virginia, and then to Buffalo, New York, and Cincinnati, Ohio, and we now have teams in all of those markets. Um, you know, inevitably, we just basically forex our deal flow. Just looking at at, at forex the the markets, we have a lot more deal flow. And so, um, we've actually recently done less in Pittsburgh, become a more competitive market. It was sort of a wild west when we were getting started, but now, um, yeah, we're we're much more open to geographical diversification. One of the things that I think we realize is that it maybe wasn't healthy to be so concentrated. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of the, we like the market because it's uh, diverse in its economic base. There's no one industry that drives the entire economy. And yet, you know, what if one or two of the big employers went under and all we have is real estate in Pittsburgh? Well, you'd feel it pretty painfully. So. We've diversified a bit over time. Um, yeah, it's a really smart move. Still love this real estate. <laughs> um, so you, you mentioned vertically integrated. How do you find, how do you feel, let's say, that um, benefits you and your investors? Yeah, it's a great question, Charles. Um, I think there are pros and cons both ways. And I think you just kind of have to pick a lane. So... We picked the vertically integrated lane um, <clears throat> in part because we wanted to control the end product, which for us is, you know, providing a home to a tenant. So uh, we wanted to control that experience. We wanted to control the experience of um, customer service, but also of maintenance and capital expenditures. We wanted to, you know, really be hands on with those tenants to make sure that mm-hmm. we understood, you know, hey, if the tenant says. Uh, I've got this particular issue. We wanted to make sure that we're diagnosing how to resolve that issue, you know, ourselves as opposed to having a, a third party person, um, you know, that has, they have their own incentives typically uh, telling us, you know, what they think the issue is. Now, that said, again, there's pros and cons both ways. We had to build out the staff and the team in these markets and, that comes inevitably with growing pains. You know, we've had to learn uh, new vendors and new markets. Whereas if you hire a third party property manager, they typically have those relationships existing. So uh, certainly hasn't been um, perfect, but that was the lane that we chose. And, uh, you know, it's kind of really tied to how we think about our purpose and our mission, which is, you know, really caring for the tenants. and, And so we wanted to really control that process. Yeah, you definitely have a lot more control when you're doing the vertical integration because there's just so many variables with property management. And if you're able to control those, um, I I would imagine, because I've passively invested with a lot of groups that have their vertically integrated. And I think it's a little bit more streamlined when you're getting answers um, to questions you're asking about how properties are being operated because they're... it's it's all the same company, and so it's um, it, you know technically it's all the same company. So, but um, that's very interesting, Andrew. One thing like I, I know you were talking about um, 
bettering lives for your tenants. And I know you guys have a company slogan of uh, improving lives through real estate. And I think as a value-add syndicator myself, you know, when you're buying properties, I think tenants are really a little worried when ownership changes. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know if they've got a slumlord coming in. They don't know if their rents are going up, which they usually are, because we're normally going to these properties and uh, improving them. I mean, how does that feel? I mean, how, does, how do you guys feel that you are really improving the lives of your tenants and their neighbors when you're going into a new property or a new neighborhood? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question, Charles. So first of all, taking a step back, if you look at our um, mission of improving lives through real estate, we really think of that with four primary stakeholders being our tenants, our investors, our employees, and the communities that we serve. And all of those are lives that we touch every single day. And <clears throat> so one of the obvious uh, things that that presents or one of the obvious challenges that presents is a natural tension between improving the lives of our tenants and improving the lives of our investors. Because mm -hmm. some might say, well, an easy way to improve the lives of the tenants is just to, you know, pour money on them, right? You know, fix every issue that they want, you know, lower their rent, right? That, that would really improve their life. Well, that's not going to improve the lives of our investors. Um, and sort of vice versa. I mean, one thing you could do is squeeze every penny out of a property, and that's probably mm -hmm. going to improve the lives of our investors. But we actually think that would not only be detrimental to our tenants, but actually detrimental to the performance of the property. Um, so for us, it's about taking a holistic approach to the lives that we're improving. And so what does that look like? Well, you mentioned value add and you know adding value to the property. So inevitably that might cause rents to increase. Well, for us, um, we view improving lives through real estate as it relates to our tenants. Um, with really providing excellent customer service, you know, 24 hour maintenance hotline, um, caring for them, you know, in, in a way that we think provides them with clean, you know, dignified housing that many folks, uh, you know, in, in the workforce housing space actually don't think about that as a, a key pillar to their existence. You know, we do think about that. Like, let's make sure we're providing somebody with a house that I, I would want to live in, right? If I, if, I'm not, if I wouldn't be comfortable living in the apartment, we shouldn't be renting it out that way. So that's sort of our litmus test. Um, what it doesn't mean is that, uh, you know, we're, we're giving rent breaks or, um, you know, otherwise making bad financial decisions because we actually think that that would be not providing dignity to those same tenants. You know, we think the dignified thing to do is actually to treat tenants, um, you know, as human beings and therefore treat them as folks um, who are responsible and can make responsible decisions. And, um, and if we add value to a property, we usually try to do that in a way that shows care and, and love. And yet, um, if rents need to go up, rents need to go up. So, um, so we, we try to balance that and it's, it's not easy. Um, it's a, it's a tension that we, we work through every single day, but we, we live in that tension and rather than trying to avoid that tension, we just really lean into it and try to try to do the best we can for our stakeholders. 
Yeah, that's a great answer. The what I found really with tenants is that most of them will pay a little bit more if the property is being run correctly and a lot of issues. Because how many times have you walk in, you've, you've walked through units uh, in a due diligence and you have tenants just complaining about stuff that oh, you know, it's been months and months, and the the current landlord or management company has just kind of put them to the side. And so I think it's people will pay more. I feel for a better product, a safer place, a cleaner place for their family and themselves. That's what I found. So yeah, but, we found um, the same. So you guys have a very, obviously a very successful partnership. And I find that when in commercial real estate, especially in larger firms like your own, um, you have, it's a pivotal, uh, pivotal part of how your business runs. So can you explain how partnerships have been so important to you know, between you two and then between, you know, your company and other companies uh, for the growth of your business. Yeah, absolutely. I can take a first stab at that. I'd love to hear Dan's perspective as well. Um, well, first of all, I think partnerships are one of the most amazing things, uh, you know, that you can kind of enter into and also one of the most challenging. So <laughs> I think what makes partnerships so amazing is, and particularly mine and Dan's partnership is the diversity that exists in between us. Dan and I are like wired as total opposites on every single personality test. You know, everybody knows the disc. I'm a high DI. Dan is a high SC. Um, I mean, we're just wired differently. And so that creates really incredible strength for an organization like ours because we just bring different things to the table. Um, that also, creates challenge. You know, we communicate differently. We prefer to be communicated with differently. Um, we think differently, you know, we think differently about, um, about the financial performance of our assets. And we think differently about how, um, our mission, you know, some of the things we just talked about, how that, how that relates to, you know, tenants and investors and our various stakeholders. So, uh, one of the things that we've, I, I would say, first of all, like, we work really hard at that. We're very intentional about our relationship. And one of the things that we realize is that um, we have to lean into, you know, that diversity and lean into the things that um, make us different and, and, and actually value them and um, allow them to, to manifest themselves in our relationship. So it's definitely true for our partnership. I would say that's true for, uh, you know, our, relationships with employees and direct reports. We try to take that same approach. Um, you know, there's, you, you've probably heard the, uh, the golden rule, you know, treat others as you want to be treated, but there's like this platinum rule, which is treat others the way that they want to be treated. Uh, so in other words, if a person prefers email communication, um, as opposed to, you know, verbal processing, my approach to that person needs to be that I'm going to send them a detailed email and work through it in email. Um, so I think partnerships really just, it's understanding the other person and also having the self-awareness um, to be able to interact in, in the way that is most valuable in that relationship. I would say as it relates to other partners, you know, lenders and um, other folks that we work with, we take a similar approach, which is, um, you know, how can this be a mutually beneficial relationship? It's not about, take, 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 you know, it's about, uh, frankly, our postures typically give, give, give. It's like, Hey, how can we add value 
to this person, right? If this is a lender we're working with, how can we really make the experience incredible for them? How can we be a great client for them? Um, you know, how can we really be a standout partner for our vendors, you know, our landscaping vendors, our, um, you know, snow plowing vendors, how, how can we pay them quickly and make sure that they come away thinking that they're having a great experience with us. And we just find that if we take a, you know, others focused approach that really, um, adds value to that relationship and ends up actually benefiting, uh, us as an organization as well. That's a great answer. I love that about the vendors and it's kind of mere making the relationships less transactional and more of a true relationship. So that's awesome, Andrew. Yeah. Dan, what would you uh, change or correct about what I said? <laughs> I wouldn't change or correct any of it. I would uh, just add a, a couple bits of perspective from, from my side. I think, um, you know, looking back on the history of, of our partnership with Andrew and, and myself, I think we've grown a lot over time. And I think one of the elements, a couple pivotal elements that have helped us grow, I think is one, just making a shift to Andrew's point um, away from like, what do I want? And more to what do you want? Where, where, where do you want to go? And how can I help you get to where you want to go? And then reciprocating. And I think in our case, the answers are, are different for each of us. We want different things. We have different goals. And so, understanding you know, where does the other want to go and how can I maximize my efforts to help them get where they want to go, I think. And then you know, collectively taking that posture, I think, is extremely effective and, and energizing. And it's worked. And the other thing that I would say, too, is that I'm on sharing details. We started as 50-50 as partners in our early days. And I think that that was not healthy for us. So there was no uh, tiebreaker. You know, we, we were both in charge and both. And, and so we just butted heads a lot. We wanted to call the shots and we had different, as Andrew mentioned, a different perspective. And so somewhere along the line and to the point of you know, asking the question, where do we want to go? Well, Andrew is really wired to be the CEO of a business and to build this thing to get to a billion dollars in a year. And I have different goals. I want to do some other things in life and I want to be a part of what we're doing here, but I want to spend time on some, some other projects. So we realized that the best thing here is for Andrew to be the single point of accountability, the one who ultimately calls the shots. And I'm here to support in whatever way I can. And I'm going to win along the way. So I think that was a very helpful shift. For us, just to say, 50 50 is probably not going to work. And I've taken that, uh, that approach into any other business dealings I have with, with other partners. I think mean, there needs to be that single point of accountability. And I think that's been incredibly helpful to us. I would uh, also say, too, just partnerships in terms of other people. To Andrew's point, I think it's taking a servant's mindset. I, I mostly think about our investors. My role has been recruiting a lot of capital and, and thinking of them as partners and you know, thinking about where do, where do they want to go? How can we get them to where they want to go? They're not just a source of capital, but they're, they're people who care about uh, accomplishing their goals. And so I think it's, it's just taking that, that servant mindset and the true partnership posture of how can we collectively bring what we each have to get each other where we want to go. Great answers. 
So one thing I want to see is with your company growing 80 plus employees, what have you found to be your biggest challenges over the years? Yeah, great question, uh, Charles. So it's an interesting question because I would say each season has brought its own new set of challenges. So, you know, growing from zero employees to five had a whole set of challenges, right? Now we're running payroll and we got to figure out HR policies, right? Employee handbooks. That's like the startup phase of challenges. Uh, growing from five to 50 had its own set of challenges, right? Um, now we're talking about how do we scale uh, systems and processes and is our accounting system, you know, ready to go to handle this growth and uh, our HR systems. And so I think that was a very systems oriented growth phase. Um, and now we're trying to grow from 50 to 500, right? You know, we're at like 80 some employees and, and, and growing quickly. Um, and that brings its own set of challenges. And, and I think what I'm finding is that it's all those challenges are often um, wrapped in getting the right people on the bus. Um, oftentimes, the uh, the skill set that's required to run a you know thousand unit portfolio is just very different from the skill set that's required to run a ten thousand unit portfolio, and so we're finding ourselves really trying to hire the right people to help get us to that next level. Um, so I think personnel and, you know, uh, hiring, managing, and when necessary, parting ways with, uh, with team members is really the primary, you know, focus and, and challenge that we find ourselves in today. Uh, so as we, before we wrap up here, I just want to see what, uh, for each of you, what do you think are the main factors that have uh, contributed to each of your successes? Yeah, good question. Dan, you want to go? Um, sure. I mean, I, I would, I would say that I think we've had a lot of, um, good fortune. <laughs> like, things have worked out well, you know, we bought at the right time, but it wasn't really, a, it wasn't anything particularly special about us. We've worked hard. I think we've tried to stay humble and put one foot in front of the other. But in general, you know, I, I take the perspective that, uh, Gratitude is is one of the piece of life, and so I think I would mostly say it's, it's the the good fortune of the blessings that we've been fortunate to have, but also working hard, putting one foot in front of the other, and staying humble. Yeah, yeah, I would echo those for sure. I think those are some of the keys to success. I would also just um, underscore a few things we talked about in the conversation. I, I think like diversity of team has helped us um, and actually been a competitive advantage of ours, having folks wired differently that um, care about different things and are, uh, you know, just wired to think differently has been a key to success. Um, I would definitely say like our mission has been a key to our success, like actually taking a people oriented approach and um, caring for, you know, our employees first and foremost, because our employees are the ones who interact with our investors and our tenants, you know, mm -hmm. the way we think of that is, Hey, if we take care of our employees, they'll take care of our tenants and the tenants will take care of our investors. Right. Um, so 
really taken a, a approach to caring for our employees in a deep way, I think has been a key to our success. Um, and, and then last, yeah, Dan brought up a great point with good fortune and gratitude. Um, I think just taking a humble posture. So humility is one of our core values. And oftentimes we don't know what we don't know and we're not afraid to say it. So I think people are um, attracted to humility and like kind of repulsed by <laughs> pride and arrogance. And so we, we just, we just take an approach of, Hey, we're trying to figure this stuff out. We don't have all the answers. Do you want to come journey alongside of us? And I think that has really helped us to be successful. Well, fantastic. So how can our listeners learn more about you and your businesses? Yeah, sure. Our company's called Burgo, B-I-R-G-O. Uh, so Burgo.com is our website. Um, you know, we're, we're uh, as Dan mentioned, we launched a fourth fund. So um, our fourth fund is on our website. We're, we're typically always raising capital. And um, yeah, if, if uh, any listeners are in the, you know, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Buffalo area, and you're looking for uh, a good home, we've got, we've got some rental units. So uh, you can, you can figure all that stuff out on our website. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you guys, Andrew and Daniel, for coming on the show today. And uh, I'm looking forward to connecting with you guys face-to-face -face at some point. Yeah, looking forward to it, Charles. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, guys. It's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at ScheduleCharles.com. That's ScheduleCharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.